healthcare provider sector will not be the same six months from now. It is going to be different. And some of the things that are going to be different are the way we use telehealth, the acceptance of that, the way we virtualize things, the way we kind of look at the payer scheme that's out there. I think we'll also have a validation that systems matter. That was Dr. Rod Hockman, President and CEO of Providence, speaking about the changes to delivery system caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Gary Bisbee, and this is Fireside Chat. Dr. Hockman has been communicating with many of his CEO colleagues from other leading health systems around the country, and there's a consensus on the financial havoc being caused by the coronavirus outbreak. Let's listen. Importantly, and I know my colleagues around the country are feeling the same thing, we're trying to figure out how we're going to pay our bills. So we are you know, opening up our lines of credit, making sure they're there. We're looking at what help we're going to have from FEMA and from the new bill that's being passed in Congress, because I think the financial stress on our sector is going to be profound. Dr. Hockman and the 120,000 people working at Providence are on the front lines, and they've been managing the COVID-19 surge for 60 days. They're under intense pressure, as you can tell from the emotion in Dr. Hockman's voice. His use of the term battle is not an accident. Dr. Hockman talks candidly about the role of a leader in a crisis, how he communicates with the board of directors, what he thinks about flexing health delivery assets, and much more. Let's welcome Dr. Hockman to the show. Hi, Rod. We appreciate your being with us today to give us an update and perspectives on the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks so much. Sure. Sure. Great to be here. We know the surge is highly variable by state, region, markets, and so on. When did the surge actually begin for Providence? So let me step everyone back, give everyone a history lesson. On January 21st of this year, the first index case in the United States was in Snohomish County, which is just north of Seattle. And it was a traveler who had been in Wuhan and was hospitalized, ended up in the ICU, and was treated with remdesivir uh, successfully. And subsequent to that, we had other community outbreak, uh, in addition to what everyone knows happened in a nursing home in uh, Kirkland, Washington. So we have been at this for now two months, pretty intensely. And even though we didn't have a shelter in place, slowly but surely all of our companies from, from pretty early on, like Amazon and Microsoft, have been working from home. So the surge happened to us probably two weeks ago. The good news is with all that we've done is we've actually started to see that curve stay steady. So the number of new COVID-19 patients that are coming in to our hospitals in the Northwest has stayed at a steady rate. And we're holding our breath and seeing where that goes. So, Rod, I know you've been at it for two hard months there. How are all the caregivers taking all this? Seems like just a long, long time to be at it. So, you know, when we started two months ago, I think we were the first people to speak loudly about testing, 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 PPE, PPE, and protective equipment and personnel. And, you know, what's a little bit disheartening is that we've been talking about this for two months and we're still talking about it now. And I'd say, you know, we're starting to see movement in all of that area, but the issues have all been the same. And those are the things our caregivers have been incredibly brave going about this. 
But the biggest frustration they've had has been the lack of testing and that relative lack of protective gear to make sure that we can keep them safe. So moderate degrees of anxiety amongst everyone. Our psychologists and psychiatrists have created an app to measure that, to let people know where they can go to get some relief, because that's getting to be a big issue. And I've been asked about that from a number of folks around the country, because I would not underestimate that anxiety and tension that the caregivers are feeling. How about shortages? Are you able to staff all of your units? So far, yes. What we're finding, you know, we're using some registry staffing. We are seeing a little, what I would say, price gouging because they know it's a seller's market out there. So that's been a problem. But so far, we've been able to cobble it all together and be able to staff our units. Our doctors have repurposed themselves in a lot of cases. We haven't been doing elective surgery for now uh, close to two weeks. So we're repurposing a lot of our folks. Last week, we did 10,000 virtual visits. So a lot of the investment on the electronic side telemedicine is paying tremendous dividends. Those were 10,000 visits that didn't occur at our emergency room or at our doctor's offices. You've been a leader in the telemedicine area for some time, and like you say, it's really paying off. I'm sure that's going to be one of the manifestations of this COVID-19, that we just become more virtual as we deliver medicine. Do you see it that way, Rod? Yeah, I. you know, people have asked me, I just had a meeting with my board yesterday. We did it telephonically and we met with our our leaders and we gave them a run through. And the one thing I gave them absolute certainty that the healthcare provider sector will not be the same six months from now. It is going to be different. And some of the things that are going to be different are the way we use telehealth, the acceptance of that, the way we virtualize things, the way we kind of look at the payer scheme that's out there. I think we'll also have a validation that systems matter. So this whole movement about consolidation, I think we're going to see an acceleration of it because it's the only way. And then importantly, and I know my colleagues around the country are feeling the same thing, we're trying to figure out how we're going to pay our bills. So we are opening up our lines of credit, making sure they're there. We're looking at what help we're going to have from FEMA and from the new bill that's being passed in Congress, because I think the financial stress on our sector is going to be profound. If you think about the margins on our business across the largest 150 health systems, it's less than 3% anyway. And then you look at the amount of contribution to that from investment income, it's not a good story. When you eliminate elective surgery, that's pretty much your margin, isn't it? You got it. And all of our colleagues around the country, I know I've talked with uh, some of our folks in New York and around the country, we're all coming up with the same numbers. But that's going to be part of the crisis that we're going to have to deal with inevitably as as this works its way through. Buckle your seatbelts. But what our advice is that we're taking it one day at a time, but we're also looking out at six months. So when we take have a breather, we keep speculating on what we look like six months from now. And um, that's going to be important uh, important for us all to do. Well, it's hard to avoid the thought, and it just is tracking along with what you're saying, that certain health systems are not going to be able to keep up. They're going to be in economic stress extremists. 
And it seems obvious that mergers are going to be the only way out, really. Are your colleagues thinking that way? Well, we haven't really talked about that. That'll be, that's for a later date. Right now, we're doing the battle. The other thing that a lot of us have been talking about, what's the role of those private insurers in this overall uh, health crisis that we have? But something I think that we need to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Brad, let me go back to one point you made about testing and protective equipment. Do you feel that it's a government's role to prepare for pandemics like this? So here's the deal. Of course, we've got to get better prepared. Let me, let me make a statement. The United States of America should never be dependent upon a foreign supply chain for things that are essential items for the caring of our patients in this country. So for shame on us, and I think we should all say that we've got to look at pharmaceuticals, PPE, ventilators, all need to be manufactured here in the good old United States. And I think the country's going to have to think differently about how much stuff gets outsourced overseas. So I think that's a big aha. I don't think there's anyone that disagrees with that. And it has to be ready and able for the next hurricane, earthquake, pandemic, you name it. And I think it's been woefully inadequate. It's, in a sense, for those of us who understand history, it's where the United States was caught very flat-footed back in World War II some 75 years ago. I feel the same way as a you know, health professional on the front lines, that we were complacent. And I think we all share some blame in it, both the federal government, states, and also us as healthcare system. But there are going to be some lessons learned about that. Well, as you said, life is going to be different six months or 12 months from now, and hopefully this is one way that it will be. How is Providence doing in terms of ICU beds and ventilators? So far, so good. We know where every ventilator is. We're repurposing the ventilators that we have in the operating rooms. We've done the work to split ventilators if necessary. We've almost gone as far as seeing what ventilators are out in the veterinary community as well. We've sourced everything. We also looked at our data, Gary, maybe sharing this with our New York audience. Our average vent time in, in the Northwest has been 5.5 days. That's an important statistic. It's not only the absolute number of ventilators, but it's amount of the length of stay on the ventilators that determines how much capacity you have. I think that's an important number to follow. It's interesting point you make, which suggests that it'd be really good to gather best practices or better practices, creative practices that you all are using. I'm sure if we do that around our largest systems, we're going to find some very interesting things. What message are you giving the 120,000 caregivers at Providence? Let me just tell you about how we're managing this military operation here. So every morning, 730, 410 people are on Microsoft Teams, led by our chief clinical officer, Dr. Amy Compton Phillips. We cover everything from supplies to HR policies to what the latest things coming out of Washington, D.C. are to what our volumes are looking like. Data analysts are doing that. So we do that every morning, seven days a week, starting at 7.30, generally going till a little bit after 8 o'clock. Our operational people meet every day in the afternoon virtually at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We have our senior group meeting once a week to kind of make sure that all of the various 
supplies and things that are out there that we know about. What I would describe uh, 120,000 people in seven states, it's federal, state, and local. So as the federal government, which is the system, we see our capabilities of what we have to supply to our states. And then at each hospital has its own disaster plan also in place, and all of these things roll up together. The role of the leaders is to stay calm and give people accurate information. We don't sugarcoat it, but we don't panic people. And the job of the chief executive is to drive the car between complacency and panic, but giving people the information they need. And I send out a communication almost on a daily basis to the organization. My communication people have been great about doing that. And then we communicate pretty intensely at the local level so people have all the information they need. Rod, going back to one of our previous discussions, we hear a lot of talk about asset light and number of beds, and let's cut down the number of beds. And I know there's differential shortages in various parts of the country, rural areas being one obvious one. But what do you think about that discussion? It seems like we need to rethink the bed supply, given this sort of potential for pandemics? What I would say is that we need to have a more flexible bed supply, right? I'm watching, you know, what we're standing up around Seattle. We put tents out in front of every one of our emergency rooms. We've potentially repurposed a number of local hotels, and we have an outdoor facility up in Shoreline, Washington, that's ready to go. We're also looking at what the help from the feds are in terms of the stand-up tent hospitals that they're bringing us. So the question is for the future is how much flex capability you have in a very organized fashion ready to go. I don't know if we need the bricks and mortar around all of that because it's pretty expensive to keep that all available. But the question is having flex space readily available and not making it up as we go would be pretty much what I would be advocating as we look at the future. One quick question, Rod, and we do appreciate your time today. And that is, you mentioned your board of directors. What kind of questions are they asking? How often are you communicating with them? I put out a weekly communication with our board of directors so that they can have all that they need to know, you know, kind of a fact sheet. We needed to ask them to make sure we establish a cash line of credit of a mere $2 billion. We took that opportunity. My chief clinical officer, my chief of operations and strategy, and my chief financial officer did about 10, 15 minutes each on the status of where we were. I asked all the board members to submit questions ahead of time so we had those and we could answer them during the call. We probably intend on doing another call in about another two or three weeks. But uh, a weekly communication, I give my board chair a call about every three or four days just to give them quick heads up on where we're at. Rod, with leaders like you, we're going to get through this. And our thoughts and prayers are with you and all of the caregivers and communities that Providence operates in. Well, thank you, Gary. This episode of Fireside Chat is produced by Stratfire. Please subscribe to Fireside Chat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to rate and review Fireside Chat so we can continue to explore key issues with innovative and dynamic healthcare leaders. In addition to subscribing and rating, we have found that podcasts are known through word of mouth. We appreciate your spreading the word to friends or those who might be interested. 
Fireside Chat is brought to you from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where we explore the intersection of healthcare politics, financing, and delivery. For additional perspectives on health policy and leadership, read my weekly blog, Bisbee's Brief. For questions and suggestions about Fireside Chat, contact me through our website, firesidechatpodcast.com, or gary at hmacademy.com. Thanks for listening.